7. So find that passage. It's 11 verses. And this is one of four Psalms, 55, 56, 57, and 58, that talk about David being a fugitive. He's on the run from King Saul, who is out to kill him. And King Saul is jealous of Paul, uh, uh, of uh, David, rather, because David is uh, a favorite of the people. And King Saul feels threatened. So David escapes the first round of persecution, and he ends up in enemy territory, and he hides amongst the enemy. And so he's safe for a season. So if you look at Psalm 57, you'll see the superscription there. It says, to the chief musician, set to, meaning a tune, and the tune is called, or the title of the song, we're not sure, is, do not destroy. And you'll see why that's important. A mictam of David, a meditation of David, when he fled from Saul into a cave. So that's what this is about. When he flees from King Saul in a cave. Now, the story of David uh, is found over in Second Samuel, or First Samuel, and a cave is mentioned twice. David ends up in a cave two times. So we don't know which time this is referring to, but if you'll take your Bible and turn back to 1 Samuel 22, I'll show you those two incidences when David ends up in a cave as he flees from King Saul. And then this will serve as the backdrop for the psalm itself. So, if you find 1 Samuel chapter 22, and David has been in Gath, which is the region of the Philistines, and that's where he escaped into the foreign country. And then, in chapter 22 and verse 1, it says, David therefore departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. So here we have the cave mentioned. So when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And so he became a captain over them. He's, here he is in this cave running for his life and he has a group of people who are siding with him and he becomes their captain. And there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come here with you. So again, he's in a foreign country. Till I know what God will do for me. God going to take my life? Am I going to escape King Saul? Whatever the situation is. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed, and he went into the forest of Herath. And then the next couple chapters tell about that, but he's still on the run. Okay, So that's the first time a cave is mentioned. Look at the second time a cave is mentioned. It's over in chapter 24. 
And this is sort of interesting. Now it happened, and this is verse 1, when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told to him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from Israel, and he went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. We hear understand he's up there near the rocks of the wild goats. And so here Saul takes 3,000 men. How many does David have? 400, and Saul has 3,000. So, you know, 8 or 9 or 10 to 1. He's outnumbered. So he came to the shepherds by the road, and there was a cave. Second time a cave is mentioned. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. Do I need to say any more? <laughs> David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. This is a big cave. Not a little cave that you think about, the little children explore. This is a massive cave like Monmouth Cave in Kentucky, where thousands of people actually could, you know, get in the cave and there's no light. So you can hide in the darkness. Saul comes into the cave. David and his men are in the back of the cave. They see everything that's going on. Verse 4 says, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Here's your chance to knock off King Saul. And you won't even know what happened to him. That's what his men say to him. Look what it says at the end of verse 4. And David arose, and he secretly cut off the corner of of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he says, said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him. I can't kill him. I can't do this. Seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words, and he did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. And David also rose afterward and went out of the cave. And he called out to Saul. Saul's left. David sneaks out. Sees Saul going down the road. And he calls out to Saul. And here's what he said. My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the ground. And he bowed down. That must have shook King Saul. Knowing he was in the same cave with David. And just like that, his life could have been taken. But David did not kill King Saul. I believe that's the background for Psalm 57. So look over there. And look at the superscription. Look what it says. Set to the tune or the title of Do Not Destroy. You see that? Do not kill. Do not destroy or do not kill who? Most likely King Saul. His men told him to take him out. But God said to David, Do not destroy. 
So, that is in the superscription. It tells you the background. In fact, look over at Psalm 58. It says, to the chief musician in 58, set to do not destroy. You see that? Look at uh, Psalm 59. Look at the superscription. To the chief musician, set to do not destroy. And it's used one other time over in the Psalms in the 70s. So, do not destroy whom most likely, we're not sure of this, but most likely these are instructions that God has given to David not to destroy his mortal enemy, King Saul. And this, therefore, becomes instructions for us when we're faced with enemies and we want to lash out in violence and make them pay for what they've done to us. Most likely, the instruction is don't take revenge because revenge is what? Mine, says the Lord. So, with that, let's look at Psalm 57. You with me? Okay, so here's how we're going to outline Psalm 57. It's going to be divided into two parts, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see David's prayer. David's prayer. This is where he makes a plead to the Lord to spare him. And then the second part, verses 7 through 11, we're going to see David's praise. This is his response when he knows that God is going to spare him. And within this psalm, you're going to see a chorus or a refrain that's repeated on two occasions. In verse 5, you see these words. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And then in 11, you see those words repeated. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. So in each section, there is a praise or a chorus of praise to God. Okay, so let's look at section 1, David's plea or David's prayer. And I'm having a tendency to say Paul here. So if I say Paul, I don't mean the Apostle Paul. I actually mean David. I don't know why. That's what happens when you don't get enough sleep. Okay, so what we have here is David's plea or David's prayer. Okay, Let's look at the content of the prayer. It's right there in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Notice the prayer is repeated twice. This shows the urgency of the prayer. The urgency of the prayer. He feels that he has to repeat it. Look at the words, O God. This shows you the emotion of the prayer. It's, O God! And then he says, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. David needs help, and he needs help quickly. It's an urgent plea. Now look at the reason for the prayer. Why he expects his prayer to be answered. Right there in the middle of verse 1. Because, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for or because my my soul trusts in you. Notice that the mercy is precipitated upon faith. No faith, no mercy. David says, be merciful to me because why? 
I trust you. And this is what God said when he made arrangements with Israel. He said, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you that I will protect you and take care of you. All you need to do is trust me. And David, in a sense, is reminding God. So there's something that we must do, and there's something that God will do. What are we to do? Trust. What will God do? Show mercy. If you, if you ask for mercy, it means you need mercy. You don't need mercy unless you're in a predicament where it's needed. And that's what David is. He's not talking about mercy for like going to heaven type mercy. He's talking about mercy in this situation. That God will intervene in his situation. And then he says this toward the end of verse 1. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. Notice what he says. Uh, it's a picture of a little chicks going under its mother's wings when danger comes. And uh, the mother spreads out her wings and all the little chicks seek refuge under her wings for protection. David sees himself trusting and depending on God in that way. Remember Jesus, when he looked out across Jerusalem from the mountaintop, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as what? A mother hen gathers her chicks, but what, what's the next part? You would not. So, guess what? Because Jerusalem would not seek refuge, Jerusalem will be destroyed in 78. See, in order to have mercy, in order to have the protection of God, it must be linked with trust. And so this is what trust looks like. I will seek refuge under your wings. Notice, he's not trusting in the refuge of the cave. He's in the cave, but he's not trusting the cave. If David could sing a song, it would be, Rock of ages, cleft on me, on me, let me hide myself in thee. See, where is he hiding? He's hiding in the cleft, not of the cave, but the cleft of the rock. See? And so he has this trust in God. Okay? Now look at the length of the refuge. This is very interesting. Right at the end of verse 1. I make my refuge in you until these calamities, plural, have passed by. We all go through bad seasons of life. We all face various calamities. And that's when we flee and we seek refuge. You don't have to seek refuge when everything's going well. You don't see me going hiding right now. I mean, no one's throwing a spitball at me or anything like that. So guess what I'm doing? I don't have to seek refuge. You seek refuge when there's danger. How long will he seek it? He says, until the calamities pass by. How long do you stay in your storm cellar if you are in Oklahoma? All your life? No, until the storm passes by. Then you come out. Now, we're always to trust God, but you don't have to seek refuge from danger unless there is danger. See, so this is what he's saying. I'm depending on you in this particular situation. Now, notice he's addressing God directly. In verse 2, the direction shifts, and he begins to speak to us, or to his people. And notice he says to his people, those who are reading the psalm, 
and those who are reading it long after these events happen, he says, reminds us, he says, I will cry out to God, most high, to God who performs all things for me. So now he's addressing the crowd, and he tells us that he will cry out to God, most high. Notice that faith is not silent. It has a voice. And it finds its voice in prayer, crying out to God. It's not enough to say I have faith in a situation. Faith expresses itself. Most high. We dealt with that last week. There's no one higher than God. And then he tells why he's crying out to God, because he says to God who performs all things for me. God works on our behalf. God wants what is best and what is good for your life. He's for you. He's not against you. If God be against you, who can be for you? No, the Bible doesn't say it that way. The Bible says if God be for you, who can be against you? If God is for David, what are King Saul's chances of killing David? Zero. So, David cries out, that's what David does, and he expects God to perform. God does something there. So, this is very interesting. And he expects God to deliver him. And look what he says in verse 3. He says this. He, meaning God, again talking to his audience, he shall send from heaven and save me, meaning deliver me from the danger. Uh, he shall send from heaven and deliver me. So this is a supernatural deliverance. How does he save David? Does he send angels that David can't see? Does he give David supernatural strength? Does he cause Saul to you know, get caught up in his own trap? You know, it doesn't matter. The point is that when you have need and you seek refuge under the wings of God, when He answers, He performs on your behalf, and when He performs, it's a supernatural performance, and He answers from heaven, He sends supernatural, heavenly uh, rescue to you. And then He says this in the middle of verse 3, He reproaches the One who would swallow me up, who would devour me, and that one is King Saul. So King Saul's fight is not against David, King Saul's fight is against God. And then what's the next word? Selah. That is instructions for the musician to have the orchestra just play some small little quiet piece so that the audience who hears the psalm or the psalm is being sung can reflect on this, not only in the life for King David, whom in our case, he's been dead for a couple thousand years. But to reflect on it for our lives. So think about this. The next time there are powers that are coming against you. And he ends verse 3 with, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. And I looked at that passage this week, and I said, do you see it? I said, yes, I see it. David asked for mercy in verse 1. God gives him more than he asked for. He sends him mercy plus truth. Look at that. 
not only going to escape from Saul, but the truth is going to come out, and David's name is going to be cleared because they are passing rumors. Remember about King David? About David trying to get the people against him, and the truth is going to come out, and David will be vindicated. His name will be cleared. Now, all this is happening to him, and he's praying, and he's writing all this. And now he describes his condition, which is very interesting. Look at verse 4. He says, My soul is among lions. And he's not talking about real lions. He's talking about human lions. People People who are acting like lions. This is a metaphor. These are people who are trying to devour him. Isn't that what he's trying to do? Swallow him up. They're agents of Satan. Satan is like a lion who goes to and forth seeking, who he, forth, seeking who he may devour. And he says, my soul is among lions, human lions. Look how he describes them in the in next sentence. I lie among the sons of men. See, these are humans who are trying to devour him like lions. Look how else he describes his enemies. They are set on fire. Uh, they're fierce. They're passionate. Uh, they got a burning in their soul to, to capture him. This is a mission that they have planned to complete. Look what else it says about these enemies. Whose teeth are spears and arrows. Uh, again, that's a metaphor. It means that uh, these enemies' teeth, uh, this mouth area, they're like spears uh, and like arrows. Uh, look at this. Their tongue, a sharp sword. You ever heard somebody say, now that person has a sharp tongue. Uh, you see, they are waging a propaganda campaign against David, trying to move the people from supporting David over to supporting the king. And David's name has to be cleared, and God's going to send not only mercy, he's going to send truth. And so we discover that uh, this is not just warfare, but this is a propaganda campaign as well. Remember when uh, America fought in World War II, and Tokyo Rose uh, always came on the air and she'd talk about the soldier boy. Ah, you think that you're going to make it. You're not going to make it. The people back home aren't even thinking about you. They forgot about you years ago. You know. See, Japan was not only fighting us with weapons of, you know, typical weapons. They were fighting us with a weapon of propaganda. And that's what he's describing. People whose tongues are like a sharp sword. And now we come to that chorus. And right in the middle of the song, which the Jewish people will be singing years later, David says to the choir director, put this, these words in. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And this is, I think, a device in the song to let the audience know that things are just about to change. Because you just break in, the whole choir just begins to break into this refrain of this course and it means things are going to turn out right. Okay? And now the reverse, the change begins to happen. In verse 6 it says, They have prepared a net for my steps. They've prepared a trap. They're trying to get me to fall into a trap. And look what he says. Look how he describes his condition. My soul is bowed down. I am totally depressed. I'm afraid to go out of the cave and go this way because I'm afraid I'll fall into a trap 
That way I am totally down. <laughs> I am I can't even stand up straight. I feel so weak that I'm just bowed down. He's talking about the state of depression here. He goes on to say in verse 6, They have dug a pit before me, but this is great, into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. See, after the chorus there's going to be a change. It's an anticipation. They've set a trap and guess what? They get caught in their own trap. And uh, he says, that is what happens to people who are out against you, out the, against you, but they're really not fighting you, they're fighting God who is performing on your behalf. They'll fall right into their own trap. They'll get caught up in their own lies. And what's the next word? Think about it. Next time you end up in a situation like this. And by the way, if you happen to be on the other side where you're bad-mouthing people and passing rumors about people and fighting against people who are godly people, and for some reason you got in with the wrong crowd and you're siding with them, it's going to catch up with you. Think about it. Make sure you're on the right side. The enemies will be defeated. So there it is, section 1, David's prayer. Okay, Now look at David's praise. Beginning in verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Now, if I ask you what's the difference between that verse and verse 1, in verse 1, there's this urgency for mercy. So he repeats mercy twice, and he throws O God in there. But now what does he say? He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. And he repeats it again. My heart is steadfast. Notice there's been a big change. He goes on to say, in other words, he's calm. He says, I will sing and give praise. My heart is steadfast. Wait a second. What was his heart like in verse 6? He says, my soul is what? Bowed down. He was depressed. What's happened in verse 7? Suddenly he's calm. His heart's steadfast. There's a big, a big change here. And not only the inner condition of his heart or soul, he's now calm, no longer depressed. Look at the outer condition. His prayer is changed to praise. He says, I will sing and give praise. Notice, when your heart is calm, when your heart is in the right condition, your lips and your mouth will show it and you will sing to God. Uh, do we have any examples of that in Scripture? Paul in the Philippian jail, remember that? It seemed like this is, he's in a situation similar to David. He's arrested, looks like they're going to try, try him. He's probably going to be put to death. He's in there singing. And uh, the earthquake comes, everyone's trembling except Paul. He can say, my heart is steadfast, oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, and I will give praise. That will be verse 8. I like this. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and heart. I awaken the dawn. And notice, the word awake there, or a variation of it, is used three times. Twice it's a command. Do you see that? Look what he says. Awake, my glory. That means my countenance. 
come to life, my countenance. He was bared, boy, you know, he was bowed down, he was depressed. He's commanding his countenance to come alive and wake up. Change. And then he says this, awake, lute and harp. These are musical instruments. Come alive! The lute was a 10-stringed instrument, the harp was a 12-stringed instrument in David's day, and uh, he tells them to come to life. Tells these musical instruments, come to life. Well, how does a musical instrument come to life? The only way it comes to life is if you put your fingers on it and start playing it. Things are changing. Wake up, he says. Wake up. Come to life. And then he says this, and that's why where he says that he says that he's going to sing in praise, and he's going to do it on that harp and that lute in verse uh, lute in verse eight. And then he says this, and this is just a statement of fact. The third awake. I will awaken the dawn. Notice it doesn't say, I will awake at dawn. It doesn't say that, does it? I will awaken the dawn. Dawn, wake up! Look, the lute and the harp have been awakened because David's countenance has changed, his whole attitude's changed, and he's up before the light of day, and he's playing the harp and the lute, and he's singing, and he's praising God, and he, that when the sun comes up, he's playing. He, he awakens the dawn with his music. Very interesting. This is a picture of how our lives should be. Uh, Lynn's grandfather, who was a very interesting man, would wake up every morning, every day of his life, he woke up, and there was a song on his lips. It was a different song every day, and it wasn't a song that he knew. It wasn't like the old rugged cross or, you know, I've decided to follow Jesus. It was a song that God put in his heart and on his lips. And it was the most amazing thing. And he would wake up singing and praising the Lord, and that's what David does. And when he does this, he wakens up the dawn. The sun rises, and David's already been up singing. That's very interesting. Now he makes a pledge or a promise. Look in verse 9. He says this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. That's the Gentiles. In the foreign land where he is, that's where he will be praising God. Just like Paul was praising God in a Philippian jail amongst people who were not Jews. He says, I will praise you among the peoples. That's the Gentiles, the foreigners the land, of the people in the land where he is, I will sing to you among the nations. And uh, he won't only do it then, but he will continue to do it. And when he becomes king, he will lift up the God of Israel among the nations. And then we have verse 10. Here's why he's going to do it. Because your mercies reach unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds just another way of saying your mercy and your truth is boundless it's boundless and my praise shall be boundless my praise is going to match your mercy and your truth uh, it reaches to the who was it saying that uh, Andre Crouch when he talked the blood shall never lose its power it reaches to the highest mountains remember that Flows to the lowest valleys. Oh, the blood. Remember that? And this is what he's saying about God's mercy and truth. It reaches 
up into the heavens. David says in one, Psalm 121, he says, I look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. And God's mercy reaches to the highest heavens and His truth reaches into the clouds. It's boundless. In other words, His mercy and His truth never runs low. You ever think about that? And it never runs out. <laughs> it's always available. And God performs on your behalf if you trust in Him. And so the psalm ends with that great chorus, in light of this praise, he tells the choir to sing this. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your earth, let your glory be above all the earth. This is the solution to his problem. Do not destroy. Trust in God. Find refuge under his wings. Next week we'll be in Psalm 58. It's hard to believe that'll be the fourth psalm already of the summer. We'll pick up the next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's an encouragement to us. Help us to come to our senses when we are in a crisis. Whether the stock market crashes, whether we get a bad report regarding our health, whether there are friends, relatives, colleagues, but all enemies who turn against us, may we realize that we're to look to you. You're the one who helps. You keep your covenant promises as we trust in you. Thank you, Lord, for this song. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Thank you.